Welcome to the Pop Culture Palace Presents Podcast, the official show for the Pop Culture Palace website. Every other week on this feed, you will find an episode from a rotating group of shows. This week, we bring you Pop Culture Palace Presents Episode 15, a one-sided conversation about Jack Kirby. This is the Pop Culture Palace Presents, and I'm your host, Al Sedano. Way back in episode 4, August of last year, I talked about wanting to do some spotlight episodes on Jack Kirby during what would have been his 100th year. August 28th will be his 101st birthday. If you look back at my feed, you will see that I didn't really do that, well, at all. Things don't always go how you plan, which should have been the title of this episode, honestly. You see, I actually did get something done. I got Mike from the KirbyCast and Comics in the Golden Age podcasts join me as we talked about our favorite New Gods characters created by Jack Kirby. It was a great recording. The problem is that the laptop I use for recordings died. Now, lucky for me, I had saved the backup of most of my recordings, including that one. Well, I thought I did. The program I was using to record would give me three recordings once it was done. One of the whole conversation, one of just my side and one of just the guests. Turns out, I backed up the wrong one. I backed up the one of just Mike. I'm not on it at all. Which probably is the best option out of the screw-ups that could have happened. The other problem is that since the laptop I was using died, I've been having issues with getting recordings done over Skype. So for now, unless I'm recording for a person sitting right next to me, or they're the ones doing the recording for me, I'm not able to do that. I'm hoping this issue will be resolved very soon, but as of now, it isn't yet. I was initially a bit frustrated with everything that had happened, but I ultimately decided it would be more productive to see what I could do with what I had instead of just being annoyed. And what I had was some really great stuff from Mike about Jack Kirby. Stuff that shouldn't just be chucked into the trash icon. And in listening to the recording, I had forgotten how long we had talked about Kirby in general before even getting to the topic of our favorite new gods. So... That's the part you're getting today. Next episode will be our countdown of our favorite new gods. But for now, here is most of our conversation about Kirby in general. Enjoy. Well, I have two. The first one and the one I've been doing for a long time is Comics in the Golden Age, where you know you can probably tell from the title we talk about comics in the Golden Age. The newer one I have, and the reason I'm here, is the Kirby cast, which is devoted to the Bronze Age work of Jack Kirby, basically covering from the time he left Marvel and went to DC and did Jimmy Olsen, the Fourth World books, OMAC, you know, the Demon, Commandy, through when he returned to Marvel, did Eternals, going back to when he was doing independent work, like um, Silver Star, up into when he did the Superpowers comics. Basically, Kirby's, like I said, his Bronze Age work, so... That's my new show. I'm only three episodes in. So it is a very new show, but thank you very much for inviting me on here to talk about Jack Kirby. Uh, yeah, pretty much anything 
from the time that he left Marvel to go to DC onward. Eventually, my hope is to cover all of it. And I'm doing it chronologically, but not entirely. There's a few things I'm going to do out of order. For example, he did his special magazines in the days of the mob and a few other things for DC. And he had the Silver Surfer graphic novel with Stanley in the late 70s. A few of those are going to be sort of special episodes, but all the main comics are going to be going to approach chronologically. So right now I'm on the Jimmy Olsen issues. Eventually I'll be spreading into the greater fourth world. And then um, that's going to be obviously a lot of episodes. But after that, I'll go through into his other DC series. A quick note here. The two magazines we're talking about that Jack Kirby did, Spirit World and In the Days of the Mob, Mike has picked up at least one of them since we did this recording. Episode 5 of the Kirby cast is all about his coverage of Spirit World. I think it's a really good example of how much Jack Kirby was ahead of the time. You know, my impression, and I don't want to act like I'm super knowledgeable, this is just kind of a vague impression for me, is that they didn't necessarily, they weren't kind of as successful as they wanted to be. But it's the kind of thing that was... um, if it had come out 10 or 20 years later, it would have been much bigger. You know, what he was going for was what we would envision now in modern comics as, you know, amazing. But back in the day, people didn't really quite know what to make of it. I mean, this is a guy who used to say they were someday they were going to make movies out of all these comic characters and people laughed him off. And what happened? <laughs> yeah. It wasn't just an artistic thing, but he he knew the marketing. He knew the whole how you could sell this stuff. His mind was not just people always think of him as such a creative artist, but it wasn't just that. He knew how to sell stuff. He knew the potential these things had among buyers. It it, it was in I'm I don't hope that doesn't sound crass, but I think it's in a tribute to the to him as a creator that he knew the potential these creations had. One of the things I always try to make clear on my my Kirby cast show is that I try not to make it a Kirby versus Lee scenario because I do feel like you can't look at any product. I mean, if multiple people contribute in some way to a character or product, it's very hard to really define who contributed what. So I try not to go down that road. But I do also acknowledge Kirby's perspective. And his perspective at Marvel was that he felt like Stan was getting a lot of credit that he was not. He felt like he was contributing long hours. All the artists were told and taught to draw in a Kirby style. They were given pages by Kirby. They were told to mimic his energy, the dynamic images he created. They were they were told to go. So he was almost an art director for the for the comic. So I understand his feelings when he went to DC was that he was underappreciated and he had for a long time he was hoping to get a really good contract for Marvel and Martin Goodman and one of the major things that led to him going to DC was that when Martin Goodman finally offered him a deal he felt like it was a typical deal that would be well I shouldn't say I have to correct it was not Martin Goodman he had sold the company to a new business and the new business offered Jack Kirby a contract. And they offered him a typical one that would be given to any comic artist. But it was Jack Kirby. So you could understand why Jack Kirby would look and be like, this is ridiculous. I'm, I created almost all of these characters. 
that you have this empire built on and he walked. And so I, I try not to be a, I, I try to look at it from the perspective of the person. And while I think Stanley and Jack Kirby both contribute to these characters, I could totally understand why Jack Kirby would walk being given everything he'd done for Marvel, that this new company had just given him a deal they would give to an artist who just walked in off the street, you know? I, I think people don't give enough credit, and this is a weird thing to say given this is a Jack Kirby-centric episode. I don't know if people give enough credit to Stanley's um God, bear with me, I'm trying to... His soapboxes, his letter columns, his dialogue, his... You know, even in when he put the asterisk in, there would be a little editorial comment. He created a image of a secret, cool universe, a new thing for comic readers that would want to be on board with. You know, oh God, I'm not expressing this well. But he, through his dialogue and writing, he created this image of a um, new comic universe that people were not accustomed to with DC and other titles. And through his letter columns and editorial pages, made people feel like they were on the ground floor for something new. And even putting aside the individual issues writing, I think that was a big part of the Marvel Universe becoming what it was. Now, clearly the characters and the issues as created by Kirby needed to support that. There had to be meat behind what Stan was selling. I view Stan as a used car salesman, but a great used car salesman. Like, he knew how to sell stuff. He knew how to go to college campuses, write in the editorial pages, and sell his item. Kirby provided the meat to support that. He Stan sold people on it, and Kirby gave them what he promised. Does that make sense? I must have said something semi-intelligent here, but damn if I can remember what that was. Yeah, exactly. Kirby built great cars, and Stan knew how to sell them to people. I do not mean this as a knock on Stan, because, you know... If you, you could build the best car in the world, but unless someone's out there actually selling and promoting it, it doesn't mean crap. So, you know, I'm not trying to short Stanley at all when I say it that way. I have to assume I had said something to Mike about my first introduction to Stanley being his voiceover introductions in the Spider-Man and his Amazing Friends cartoon from the early 1980s. You know, it's funny you say that. That's the first time I met Stan. Even before I started collecting comics, I watched those cartoons, and I learned who Stan Lee was. I didn't understand this, so he created him, but I knew Stan Lee was some kind of superhero spokesman guy. And so when I read comics later, I was like, oh, that's why Stan Lee, you know. But I think you're very right, because back when he was with Marvel in the 60s, he was the whole idea was Stan was a salesman, and Kirby was the worker bee. He did all the work. He was not that my understanding. And again, I do not claim to be any kind of Kirby expert. I part of one of the reasons I'm doing the show is to learn about Kirby more than anything and hoping people learn along with me. But I'm not trying to claim that I have any, you know, I'm certainly not Mark Evan year who knows, you know, so much about the man, but you get the sense in the sixties, he was a worker bee and he worked hard and he would sit there at the drawing table and draw and Stan was out there as the salesman selling everything and writing. And but when he came to DC, he did he started doing, you know, he did these little editorial pages where he's trying to sell his product and explain it. And you do wonder if he came to some sort of realization that if I'm gonna do this, I can't just be what I was before. I'm gonna have to actually try to 
sell this product. And it, it, I don't, I kind of got the sense in reading that stuff that he was outside of his comfort zone, that that's not who he was by nature. It didn't come naturally. And I don't know what role that played in the success or failure of the new God stuff, but I don't think he was inherently like Stanley. It was, he's, he was inherently good at that stuff. I don't think Jack necessarily was. He was the creator. He was perfect at sitting down to drawing you an amazing comic page, coming up with a spectacular character. But I do think he kind of struggled in trying to sell him stuff, and I do think he was trying to do it at the time. But it just wasn't It wasn't the same as him creating and having Stan Lee trying to sell the product. And no, Jack clearly was ready for more recognition. I just don't know if it... He, in himself, in his heart, understood what he would have to do if he really wanted to achieve that level of success or recognition with the public. Because it's not just about, at the end of the day with comics, it's not just about putting a comic out there. You do have to sell it. You do have to put yourself out there as a personality. You do have to kind of promote it. And I do think there's kind of a gap for him between what he was capable of as an artist and creator Versus what he was capable of as a promoter. Yeah, you know, whenever anyone talks about Kirby nowadays, though, my mind wanders in a way because I I start thinking of given because he was such a trendsetter, whatever era he worked, whether it was the Golden Age or the Silver Age or the Bronze Age, that I think now, damn, what could he, you know, he always took what was there and made it into something more. That God, given everything that's come before in comics, half of which was built on his work, but you know, even putting it aside and assuming it wasn't, God, if he came along now, God knows what he could do. You know, with all the, you know, computer stuff. I mean, I, I don't think he would turn. I, I. This is kind of presumptuous because I don't know. I don't know the man. I don't know his family. I don't know Mark Evanier. I'm just a fan as a show, but I do think he was always someone to embrace new stuff. Now that you have all the stuff that artists are capable on a computer, I like to think he would embrace that. He would try to find what he was capable of, try new stuff, and we could see some glorious stuff from him if he was around today. We would see he, – he could take the 2018 comic market and amaze us even today. We must have been talking here about how Kirby had the ability to take ideas that would sound dumb on paper, like a cosmic-powered surfer and make them cool and amazing. It's a very interesting backstory, too, that he's, if I remember correctly, he's a soldier who got injured, correct? Yeah, so the whole idea of having someone who's basically confined to a bed and can't move, but he's got this alternative super persona who can go out, who, who's the black racer, that's, that's a pretty fascinating concept. And one of the things I always like about Kirby is he took concepts that could kind of look ridiculous on their face. I mean, Silver Surfer, a silver guy on a surfboard, and the Black Racer, who's literally riding skis, you know, but he made, he added a certain level of um, dignity to them. I don't know if that's the word I'm looking for, but, or, depth to them that you would have a hard time in any con any medium outside of comic books buying but somehow within comic books it worked perfectly 
No, I think if they could, I mean, this is one of the concepts I would, because there is something, it's goofy, but it's also really cool the way he draws them on the skates, or the skis. It just looks really nice. And I noticed when he had the Black Racer in his story, and other people have done this later, the Black Racer stories tend to be darker and more mature than some of the other New God stories. And and I'm trying to describe this in a way that's probably not working, but the Black Racer, he's a black man, and his family's taking care of him, and he's confined to a bed. And his stories usually center around certain socioeconomic issues involved in that. And they're very they're much deeper stories than a lot of the other New God stories. That's been the case both for the ones Kirby did with him and the ones that have been done by other creators since. I definitely know what I was talking about here. One of my favorite non-Kirby uses of the Black Racer, Grant Morrison and Howard Porter's Rock of Ages storyline from JLA, specifically issue 14. Part of the League is trapped in a possible future where Darkseid rules all, and this is basically the last day of existence. We don't see or realize it's the Black Racer until the end, but every time a character dies in this issue, we see the Racer interact with them. It's just an amazing storyline, and if you haven't read it before, I highly recommend it. Oh, God, I completely forgot about that issue. That was so good. That was great. I got to reread that one after talking to you because I have not read that since it first came out, and I completely forgot that was even a thing. But that was a great use of the character. You know, that's one of the things, the Black Racer, yeah, he has so much potential. I mean, I do think he could be used to carry a series with the right writer. You know, because the whole idea of the character these characters are dying and he's kind of the, um, Oh God, how would you describe him when people die and the black racer shows up? How would you kind of describe his character? But he's kind of a grim reaper at the end of the day, isn't he? I like the black racer. He's another example of Kirby taking the mundane and making it epic. And I think this is a basic fact about Kirby that can be seen in his art, but he doesn't just draw people getting punched. They get punched across a room, breaking whatever they fall into, and smashing into a thousand pieces. Now, I wouldn't want to see thousands of things like this, but the few we have, like the Silver Surfer and the Black Racer, I think work. I think there, he would be a good basis for a Vertigo series, despite kind of the goofier aspects with the skis. I think a really good writer could turn him into a great Vertigo series, with all the people he encounters who are going through our near death or death experiences. I think you could get a lot of mileage out of that and you could have some very powerful stories. Yeah, it would be in this. Yeah. This market is hard to support anthologies. Hopefully maybe with a vertigo type spin at my last, but yeah, I have to admit anthologies have a hard time nowadays. I apparently gave Mike an awesome pitch for a Black Racer series that now no one will ever know about. It has been lost to the ages, and we are all poor for that. Or it sucked and he was just being nice. Either or. I'm sold. I, I totally... You said it better than I could, but I think the Black Racer character could totally give you a hook like that for a series. It would, I think it could be done very well. And I think you nailed a premise. No, I think that sounds like an excellent premise for a um, Black Racer type series. And I think the character does have potential that no one has ever quite, even 
I'm, I'm sad to say even Kirby, I never got a chance to really explore or develop and just kind of out there and someone could grab onto what you described and make a fantastic series out of it. Well, Dark Side's had a pretty good run, but <laughs> the others, yeah, you're, yeah, although I am a huge defender. All right. I should probably hold off until later, but I am a huge defender of the Walter Simonson Orion series from the nineties, which is an amazing series and probably one of the best, probably the best, absolutely non Kirby new God series of any creator. Feedback for our last episode, episode 14, Tampa Bay comic-con 2018 on Facebook. The post about that episode was liked and shared by Justin Lesniak, Joe Sedeno, Ruth and Darren Sutherland, Mike Peacock, Aaron Headmoss, and Ogon Josefato. On Twitter, it was retweeted and liked by Justin the Buck. A month of Mondays. Nanogram, Com 1 Seabooks, Brian Z, and Comics in the Golden Age. Don't forget to also check out our homepage, thepopculturepalace.com. Follow us on Twitter, at the PC Palace, and Facebook, just type Pop Culture Palace in the search box. If you'd like to hear more from me, give my other show a try. Resurrections and Adam Warlock and Thanos Podcast. You can find it pretty much everywhere you found this show or at resurrectionsadamwarlock.tumblr.com. In our most recent episode, number 81, we cover Adam Warlock getting his own title again with 1975's Warlock number 9. Yeah, they started over with number 9. They weren't too worried about having another issue one back then. You can also send us an email at thepalaceofpopculture at gmail.com. Let us know who your favorite new gods are or just your thoughts on Kirby in general. It was 1938. The country continues its slow recovery from the Great Depression, while war clouds loom throughout Asia and German aggression builds in Europe. Americans seek comfort and distraction. It was a time when the most popular form of entertainment was radio, but a new form had been growing steadily and was set to explode. It was to become the golden age of the American comic book. My name is Chris. And my name is Mike. Please join us as we explore comics in the Golden Age between 1938 and 1955. All genres will be discussed, from superheroes to crime, horror, science fiction, humor, and western. So join us for the Comics in the Golden Age podcast, available through iTunes and Stitcher, and visit us on Facebook or at comicsinthegoldenage.com. That's it for this time. I hope you enjoyed this slightly different episode. If you want to hear more from Mike, make sure you check out the Kirby cast and Comics in the Golden Age, comicsinthegoldenage.com. You can find both shows wherever you look for your podcast, and there will be links in the show notes as well. Mike will be back next episode as we go over our favorite Jack Kirby created new gods. See you then. Music for this podcast was going higher. Provided by royalty-free music from bensound.com. I used to think, all right, digital will be the key. I'll stop buying stuff. I can just get it digital.
so I started buying a bunch digital and then I found I was still buying paper. So I was like, well, crap, now I'm just spending twice as much money as I did, you know, before because I was using it as an excuse to buy even more. So I do still get, I have the Marvel Unlimited app and I do still buy some stuff digital. There's a few series like Invincible I've only ever bought digital. Walking Dead I've only ever bought digital, but it hasn't dented my, you know, paper comic buying either. I still love the smell of paper and the feel of having the paper copy in front of me. You can find it pretty much everywhere you found this show. You can find it everywhere. You can find it pretty much everywhere you found this app. You can find it pretty much everywhere. Ugh, Jesus. <laughs>